We'll be reading 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Good morning. Good to be with you all today. I appreciate all the, uh, the good singing and the prayers and uh, Nick's family of Bible education. Uh, well played, Nick. I thought that was great. Um, I want to continue today what we started last week. If you were here, um, we started looking at the rudiments or the basics of this ministry of reconciliation that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. We're going to have much to say about this throughout the year. We're going to you know, take deeper dives into different aspects of it, different applications of it. I just sort of wanted to get the ball rolling with the first month or so of lessons, sort of laying out the basics, framing it. What, what's, you know, let's look at the 30,000 foot you know, uh, view of the, of the forest before we start examining the trees. So we'll come back to all these things and, and go deeper and, and wider as well, Lord willing. But I wanted to lay out kind of the rudiments, the basics, the fundamentals of what's involved in this ministry of reconciliation. We are called to this as followers of Jesus. That's one way to describe what the, the ethical and moral um, you know, sort of upshot of being saved in Christ is. He doesn't just leave us there. He calls us to join Him in reconciling the world to Him. It's a ministry that we are given. The apostles were given it. We're given it. And so in the first lesson last week, if you were here, you may remember that we dealt with what I call the dynamics of the ministry of reconciliation. What makes it go? Um, what propels it along? What activates it? And we saw that it took a couple of things in order to be um, activated. God alone is the power behind it, and we've got to accept that. It's not just another form of social activism or something like that. God is doing something in the world through His new creation. And secondly, we saw that another fundamental criterion, another rudiment, if you will, that's necessary is that we have to accept God's invitation to be participants in it. He empowers it, but invites us to participate in it. Without both of those, the ministry of reconciliation will never get off the ground. And so we, we saw that those are the dynamics behind this ministry of reconciliation. Today we want to move from the dynamics of this ministry to the dimensions of this ministry. We asked last week, what makes it go? Now we want to say, where should it go? We want to talk about that aspect of it, the dimensions of it. Um, the arenas in which God's reconciliation should be applied. And so we're kicking that off this morning as part of this little mini-series on the rudiments of the ministry of reconciliation. And we want to start today by focusing on the reconciliation between God and human beings, the divine human 
uh, part of this reconciliation. We'll branch out from there. So when we talk about this dimension of, of getting ourselves reconciled back to God or God getting us reconciled back to him, to put it more accurately, um, through Jesus Christ, um, that's probably where many of our minds run to first when we read 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. And I think that is a, a fitting starting point, though it's not limited to that. It never has been biblically. Uh, God never just came and go, I'm going to take care of you so you can just like, you know, wallow in a tub of butter for the rest of your life and enjoy it. I have mission for you. Um, it, when humans are created, there's a mission for them. And so, um, but it does start with this human divine relationship. So to talk about this, we really have to go all the way back to the beginning. Um, all the way back to creation. And that's what this little image comes, of course, from the famous Sistine Chapel. It has a million images, but one of them is this God. And this is supposed to represent God creating um, humanity, creating Adam. When we go back to creation, one of the things we see, one way to characterize the, the scene there in Genesis 1 and 2, is harmony. Harmony. God and humanity are unified in a kind of personal fellowship, an intimate fellowship, that is really quite astounding. When you think of who God is and how He's described in Scripture, David and I were talking about this before um, services this morning, how Revelation describes these visions of God, and it's almost like John, the writer of Revelation, who, who experienced these visions, can't even get his brain around it. He's just, they're coming at him like a kaleidoscope, and he's just trying to put human words on them, but they, they almost defy human expression. God is so holy and other and inexplicably wondrous, right? That God is walking and talking with human beings in the Garden of Eden. He's communicating. He's present with them in the Garden. There is a personal fellowship. But there's also, between God and humanity, a, a unity of purpose. They're, they're not only unified in personal fellowship, they're unified in their vocation. Because humans are, are, are called to share in God's work of having dominion over or stewarding or managing, taking care of the rest of creation. Indeed, some people think, some theologians think, and Old Testament scholars think, that, that being made in God's image, you know, He made us in His image, Genesis 1 says. What does that mean? You can speculate all day long. There's textual clues, though. And some people think the main thing that Genesis writer is saying is that being made in God's image is that we accept the vocation He's giving us. We have the same vocation He does. Who has dominion over all creation? God, right? I mean, He's the Lord. Of, he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Um, in Psalm 8, which is kind of parallel to the language of Genesis 1, we read that He has given dominion to humanity and, and put us just a little lower than the divine. You know, the, the God, or the angels, as some version puts it, but over the rest of creation. He has given dominion. To give dominion, what does that mean? You have to have it. And so when, when human beings are told, when we're told in Genesis 1, this is the first time we meet human beings in the Bible, God created man, and that's not male, that's the Hebrew word for humanity. In his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Now we get male and female, different Hebrew words. So God's image... Is, is jointly born by males and females, Adam and Eve and all their uh, 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 descendants. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the other stuff. Everything else is listed here in the, in the language of Genesis. So God already has dominion over the rest of creation and he's inviting humans to share in that role of, of exercising this 
authority, this stewardship, this, this uh, you know, husbandry, however you want to put this word. This is not exploitive language when you go look at the Hebrew. It is, is caring for it. But you're still in charge of it, in a sense. So we're being called to given and given a, vo a vocation um, that reflects um, our, our being the image bearers of God. And this vocation is very clear, that we, that we are very important for the managing, and I think you could almost say the, the making of, in a way, or reordering parts of creation, because there's a really curious thing said in the next chapter. You know, Genesis 1 gives one angle on creation. Genesis 2 gives another angle. They're kind of doing different things. Genesis chapter 2 says this, chapter 2 verse 4, These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now notice this, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, that's different than the Genesis 1 account in terms of the order, but it's got a theological agenda, not trying to give us like a videotape, you know, in some modern scientific way. No bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung up. Why? He gives two reasons. I went, he gives two reasons. I can't even count. <laughs> two reasons. Um, one is the Lord God did not cause it to rain. So there's one, one thing God hasn't done. But notice it says, and. The reason there's no, you know, these plants in the field, uh, small cultivatable plants, is because God hadn't caused it to rain. And secondly, there was no man to work the ground. Does God need us to create plants and work the ground? No. But like a lot of fathers who invite their children to join them in their business, God, out of love, creates us and says, you're going to bear my image in creation and do the things for it that I do for it. You're going to have dominion. You're going to do the farming. And you're going to help make creation go. You're going to order it and, and, and bless it the way I've blessed you. That is the design of humans from the, the minute we read it. When we meet humans in the Bible story, if this was a novel and this is where the characters are introduced, you couldn't leave this, this couple of chapters without thinking, humans have a big-time role vis-a-vis -vis creation that God gave them as part of their very identity. It reflects His image and what He's doing. We'll come back to that a lot this year, but I wanted to notice that's a very curious thing. For creation to be a suitable, suitable habitat for humanity, notice this, both God and human, humanity have a role to play. Not just God. Look what chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says. It, this doesn't happen because there's no man yet. The man who God said, I'm making to have dominion with me over the rest of creation. God designed us to participate with him in the work of ordering creation, and he designed creation to need us. And that's going to be revisited in Psalm 8, and the same thing is going to be said there. So there's this unity in purpose, unity in personal fellowship, and, and, and this harmony with God between humans and God overflows into the harmony with fellow human beings. When we have harmony with God, one of the nice byproducts of that is we begin to have harmony with other human beings who are also in fellowship with God. And you can see that here with the very first human beings. The relationship of Adam, who is at first alone, God presents to him Eve made from his own rib. And do you remember how it's described? He's, he's pretty excited, right? Um... God, from the very beginning, made us male and female. And I want you to notice something. You know how satisfying it is when you work together with somebody? We have a yard day out here, or go to somebody's house and we all pitch in. There's a lot of camaraderie that comes out of that. It's actually fun. 
If you haven't tried it before, try it. It's, it's actually, you build bonds with people. Because you're working side by side, shoulder to shoulder. You're thinking and joking and just having fellowship in the common cause. Adam and Eve are given a common cause. He said to them, he doesn't just say to the man, have dominion over creation. That, you can think that, that's not what Genesis says. <laughs> Male and female, his idea. And to them, he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, so do it. They, they are shoulder to shoulder in their relationship with creation. They are told to subdue it and have dominion over it. Now that means a lot of, that means build culture. It means do art. It means build buildings. It means do farms. It means, you know, livestock, everything. Everything that humans do is part of this, if it's right and good. So they share work together. And when Eve is first presented to Adam, you remember that in Genesis 2, uh, Genesis 1.24, we're told that they will become one flesh. They're so unified that they're one person in a sense. That's how unified, that's how in harmony they are. You might remember Adam's elation when she's presented to him by God. He says, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We're so close, we're one. So harmony with God overflows into harmony with fellow human beings. And we see that right here with the primordial pair of human beings, Adam and Eve. But let me say something more basic and more fundamental. All of this beauty, all of this harmony, and I would throw in, including our very identity as human beings, all of that is rooted in our connection to the God who is our creator. That's not insignificant. The, the number one point that you get out of Genesis 1 and 2, whatever you think about when it all happened and how it happened and you know, what, what God did to make it happen mechanism-wise and all those things that people have debates over that aren't actually addressed in the text very much. One thing it is, everything that's here was created. We're all creatures. We're all the effect of the only agent in the universe, fundamentally, and that's God. He is the creator. And our identity as human beings, what it means to be human, has to be grounded in the fact that we are in a relationship with a, be a being who created us. We're, we're mere creatures. Genesis 1.26 says that God said, let us make man or humanity, the word there in Hebrew, in our image, in the divine image, in our likeness. So we have to see ourselves and our identity as rooted in the being of God. Indeed, we would have no being. We would have no existence apart from God. Genesis 2, 7 says that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. You're a creature. You didn't invent yourself. We like to think we, we have all this agency, right? And independence and autonomy. You owe your existence to somebody else. We have to deal with that. That's where the Bible starts. I mean, if you're going to accept the biblical story as your narrative. All right? He breathed into their nostrils the very breath that they breathe. So let me ask you this. What does it mean to be human? Another way, it's another form of the question that philosophy at bottom is asking. Who are we and why are we here? Right? Human identity. What does it mean to be a human being? People have been trying to answer that since the beginning of time. Here's what the Bible would say. 
that Genesis 1 and 2 and its two creation stories present humans as created by God to inhabit a world God made with a God-given role in that world, complete with instructions from God about how to thrive in that world. Everything about being a human in Genesis 1 and 2 is with respect to God. You can't really be a human being if you're a Bible believer. If, if you take the Bible to be true, the Word of God, the story of your life, then you should be trying to define, you and I should be trying to define what we are and who we are and what it means to grow and improve vis-a-vis -vis God. There, there's no humans just sort of at large floating in Genesis 1 and 2. How much sense does it make to attempt to found our identity, our purpose, our meaning apart from God, given what Genesis 1 and 2 say? Not much at all. And yet that's what we all do, every one of us. Because we have to now turn to the unfortunate entrance into the world of something called sin. Where there was harmony that God created, sin begins to replace that, at least in part, to disturb that, to distort that with something we're going to call, for lack of a better catch-all term, alienation. If harmony means a lot of different parties and things are together, right? They're one, they're unified. Alienation begins to pull those apart. Separation, alienation. And basically, I think we can define from Genesis 1, sin as, as being this. It is a human being trying to live autonomously vis-a-vis -vis God. You're your own law. Autonomous is what that means from the Greek. Autonomous. You're your own law. You're your own standard. You're your own compass. You're steering your own ship. We're free-floating. We're disconnected, or at least partially disconnected, from the God who gave us our existence, who breathed into our, 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 ourselves the breath of life. It is the creature trying to be independent from the Creator. That's what sin is, when you boil it all down. Now, we don't do that wholesale usually. We're a little more subtle than that. We like to convince ourselves, you know, tell ourselves lies. We don't think they're lies, but they often prove to be. But at least in part, this is what we're doing. We usually want it both ways on some level. We, we happily take God's gifts, right? Right? Think of how many things you, you, you uh, just are gifts, straight up gifts. I often use the example of Michael Jordan. Any of y'all ever heard of him? <laughs> Greatest basketball player of all time, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Um, he is. Michael Jordan was incredibly talented and a work of holic too. Um, but I could work as hard as Michael Jordan and it would never have, you know, vertical jump, vertical jump, you know. Um, but think about Michael Jordan's skill set. Now he may have a lot of other skill sets, I don't know. His skill set on the basketball court at Carolina and then at Chicago Bulls. Had he lived in a different era? before they decided we're going to throw a, a, a sphere through a peach basket? What year was that, 1910 or something? I don't remember. Naismith and all that. Before that game existed, which was 99% of the history of the universe, 99.9999%, had he happened to be born a different time, what would he have done with those skills? You see how that is a, a little bit Michael Jordan and a whole lot of stuff that just is the context that he inherited. 
Your ability to make money, to use your brain and your brawn to go out and make money has a whole lot to do with where you live right now. You could do that, take that same brain and brawn in a different time or a different place and it wouldn't go anywhere. There's a lot of people, a lot smarter than us, who live in a time when there just wasn't the infrastructure. Just society hadn't evolved enough or whatever. We are living on the fumes of gifts all the time. And so what we want to do is have it both ways. We want to take those gifts that we don't deserve, we just get them. We don't want, we don't want God to stop that, but we don't want his, any part of his guidelines, really. We don't like the guardrails. That's constraining. We want the breath of life, we just want to use it to fuel whatever kind of life we want, which is not real honorable, if we're honest. But that's what sin is. So to God's life-preserving prohibition against the eating of the tree in the midst of the garden, the serpent enters and counters with a different take on everything. He says what? Basically, you can be independent. You can be free. You can find self-fulfillment if you'll but break free of these silly restraints. He says, you will not surely die, Genesis 3, 4, for God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. See, it's this picture of liberty and freedom and self-actualization. God's actually kind of keeping you down. And the woman, when she saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to, be make, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and the rest is history. Sin enters their lives, it enters the garden, it enters the world. And that harmony begins to be replaced with alienation. I want to share with you a rather long quote from a book I've been reading called Free of Charge. Um, Free of Charge, Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace. It's by a theologian that works, I think he works at Yale University still, who grew up in, in Yugoslavia back in the Cold War. Named Miroslav Volf. I love, I love a lot of his stuff. Here's what, he's talking about the thing we're talking about right now. So let me just read this. He says, we believe, as humans, we believe that we can stand on our own two feet. Does that relate? Do you, can you relate? Independent of God. And still affirm that God is the creator of everything. But that doesn't make sense. Dependence on God is the source of our being and therefore our freedom. But we can't be created by God and independent. You can't be a creature who's a, you know, created, but also be completely independent. So that, he's saying basically that's a fundamentally flawed thing to think. If we see ourselves, I'm right here now, if we see ourselves as more or less honest, hardworking citizens, we may believe we deserve what we have. Huh? That's a lot of us, isn't it? Middle America, Hard working. I, I pretty much got the stuff I got because I did the right things. I work hard. I went to bed. I didn't, you know, go out and party and do all these things. So it's pretty much me. Yeah, God. Yeah, yeah, God. It's kind of like athletes these days. Okay, or is it me or is it God? No, that's me. I'm, I'm awesome. Oh, you're awesome. Yeah, yeah, you, you, but it's me. You see that? That kind of weird thing? I can't, they can't decide who did it. I, I, I don't I really know. Maybe that's not what they're doing, but... Um, of course, God, but, but you know. No, he's, he's, look at this. This is so good. If we see ourselves as honest, hardworking, and we believe we deserve what we have, we might not feel particularly grateful for what we have because we think that rather than receiving it, we earned it. 
And we want to dispose of our hard-earned goods the way we please. See the independence coming in? Assertion of independence, pride of achievement, sense of entitlement, an absolute right to dispose with our goods. These are the ways in which we live in contradiction to who we actually are in relation to God. This is about identity and, and who you are, what you were designed to be. That all belies that claim of Genesis 1, the most fundamental claim about us. And in these ways, we, decent citizens, live as inveterate sinners. To live in sync with who we truly are means to recognize that we are dependent on God for our very breath. It means to be grateful to the giver and attentive to the purpose for which the gifts are given. And I assure you that biblically, it's a lot more than just so you can go have a rip-roaring good time for yourself. I think God wants us to enjoy things, but there's a little more, right? A little more in the Bible about how to use your stuff that God gave you in the first place than just that. So think about that. We'll talk more about that later. But when we, when we forget this, when we buy into these myths of self-improvement and self-achievement and self-actualization, what we find uh, inevitably is that instead of self-actualizing, detaching from God on some level or forgetting about God results in alienation. It's the basic nature of sin to separate. It separates us from God. We read in Genesis 3, at the end of the story after the fall, that God evicts them from the garden and makes sure supernaturally with angelic beings that they can't come back in. Sin has to be dealt with. There's something, there's a wedge now between God and humanity. There's an alienation that has replaced that unity, that fellowship that we saw earlier. And as a result of that, just as harmony with God results in harmony with other people around us and other things around us, alienation from God begins to sow alienation between us and individuals in our lives and stuff in our lives. Work, creation, everything. And we see this in the subsequent narrative in Genesis after the fall. Remember Adam? Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now it's that woman you gave me. What happened? The closeness has turned into distance. On some level. Then we read about in chapter 4, Cain murdering his brother, Abel. And we have that classic, but skin curdling, blood curdling, uh, skin chilling statement of murderous vengeance from Lamech in chapter 4 that he's going to exact revenge 77 times. And then in Genesis 6, 11, the whole thing is just on this trajectory of, of, of tension and conflict and alienation and, and violence so that the reason for the flood, the reason God has to decreate and recreate, is kind of the language used, is that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. It's just a trajectory, once sin enters, of, of, of harmony being replaced with alienation. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from others. And it's in the nature of sin to kill. Not only physically, like the violence that pervades the earth by Genesis 6-11, but spiritually. Ephesians chapter 2 says you, the Ephesians, this you know, famous Greek city with all these pagan temples where this, this church of the Lord has now started and it appears to be doing well in, in many ways, Paul reminds them of who they were and who they are now. He says, you were dead. Dead, not sick, not kind of tired, 
not just a little less than optimal, dead as a doornail dead. Why? Because of the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. That's the way the world has gone since the fall. And it applies to every one of us. Not just whoever we think the them are, the nasty, dirty other, the scary other, the weird other. It applies to you and to me. It makes sense that whatever the biblical solution to all this alienation and death is, that it would have to address sin, correct? That's the culprit, if you boil it all down. And it would also have to address, the solution would, all of creation. Since all creation is what's gone off the rails in the wake of the entrance of sin. Enter the reconciliation of Christ. This is the context for our text that Paul has written. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and following. Christ brings a whole new creation. And this new creation replaces all of this alienation which has pervaded the old world with something he calls reconciliation. New creation which can now bring about reconciliation where there was alienation. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 is saying. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Christ is this agent who brings in new creation. It's not fully here in the biblical picture, but it has been launched with his resurrection. It's been launched with the church. It's been launched with the redemption of every individual who, who becomes part of his church, part of his body. There, there's, there's a new boss in town. The world hadn't recognized him yet, but it's already started, right? And a new sheriff in town, I think is the right what they said. There's a new boss in town. Um, Notice John's open, the Gospel of John. You go to John and you look, okay, here, here's John's presentation of who Jesus is and what he came to do. John's opening statement introduces Christ in the identical words of the opening statement of the Bible. So if you're using the Greek, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which most people were in the New Testament, right? Jesus quotes the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Paul does too, almost every time. Um, and so if you're a, a Greek, you know, a, a person conversant in Greek, like a lot of people were in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, uh, it's the, the, the language of the biblical New Testament documents, and you open up your Bible, what you're going to see, I'm opening up John 1, and you read in arche, that's in the beginning in Greek, that's the exact same phrase, not kind of, not just conceptual, it's the exact wording of the beginning of the Bible. What's the beginning of the Bible talking about? Creation. This is John saying, insinuating that Jesus is ushering in a whole new creation. He is bringing into the world something like what God originated with the world before it went off the rails because of sin. So even the Gospel of John presents Jesus as the agent of new creation. And this new creation, Paul says, applies to us individually. 
2 Corinthians 5, I, I, I use the NIV because it has the broader new creation has come. But there's a reason why ver so many versions, like the New American Standard, I think, uh, I don't know if all the New American Standards do, but some of them, one I grew up with did. And then the ESV presently, he is a new creature, or he is a new creation, or something like that makes it more individual. That's included. There is a new creation. It doesn't mean it doesn't apply to individuals. It just means it's more than that. All things have become new, you know, as Revelation 22 says. But notice this. God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. If, if, as Psalm 8 says, and Genesis 1 suggests too, we are all the crown of creation, the top of it. We're under God, but over the rest of it, with God, working as his co-regents, his co-rulers, in a sense. Then wouldn't this really be the heart of the matter? It's not everything, but it's a place to start. Because sin is a matter, ultimately, of, or fundamentally, um, of individuals rebelling against God trying to be autonomous or independent on some level from God. In John, uh, in, in, uh, uh, as we stressed last week, this new creation can happen only by God's power, though. You can't create, you're not a creator, I'm not a creator. Even when we say somebody's really creative, what do we mean they're doing? They're taking stuff God made and rearranging it in brilliant ways. They're seeing connections the rest of us don't see. I heard a neurologist, or, uh, I think it was a neurologist, on NPR one time a few years ago talking about what is creativity. So you know, we recognize it, but what is it? And what they said through all their studies was the essence of creativity, people who are really creative see connections between things that the average person doesn't necessarily see. It's about connections. But it's connections between things that already exist. They're not going poof. Right? Only God does that. Only God has the power to, to you know, bring into existence something that did not exist, to use Paul's language in Romans. And guess what? Only God has the power to make you a new creature. That is, that is at the end of the day, about what God is doing in you, not what you're doing. That's the big story. You know, it, it's not a 50-50 thing. It's not a 50-50. The Bible doesn't present it that way. How many times does it say, don't think you can save yourself? Is it over 100? And, you know, I remember hearing sermons where they'd be like, well, you, he, you know, he reaches up and you reach down like it's a contract. He brings half, you bring half. It's more like you're drowning in an ocean with 70-foot waves and you don't know how to swim. And out of the blue, a helicopter appears and throws you a life ring. What's the story going to be? Even though you grab the life ring, ooh, what a nice technique to grab that thing. It, what's the newspaper going to say? What's the story going to be? They're going to go on and on about this person. Man, they're re they've got it accurately down how you grab the life ring. No, the big story, that, that's essential. You're going to die if you don't grab it. Better grab it in a way that you can hold on to it. But the big story is going to be what? These daring, you know, Coast Guard people who flew into that storm and hovered above it and rescued them with all this technology and skill and boldness and, and, and courage. And uh, it, that's going to be the big story. And we try to make the gospel story, salvation, individual salvation, so much about what we do that we forget the big story that's the, you know, 400 font headline of the Bible. Doesn't mean the other is not essential. You've got to grab the life ring. If it's a gift, you have to accept the gift. The gift isn't yours, even if you didn't do anything to get it. 
unless you accept it. If I reject your gift, I still don't have it. But that's not the big story. The big story is that somebody's generous to give you something. It's not your ability to take the bow off perfectly. It's that they gave you that in the first place. John 1, oh, I'm, I'm, 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God. That's what he says. He's the reconciler. All this is from God who initiated. He reconciled to us to himself through Christ Jesus. It's not from you or me. If it's going to happen, new creation in your life is because God decided to make it happen. In John 1, we read this, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, that is the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, who believed in his name, who trusted in what he brought, the gospel, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, here's one of those hundred, I don't know how many, probably way more than that passages, who were born how? What is your new birth? That's, I think, what he's alluding to. He's going to talk about that with Nicodemus in John 3. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You can obey all day long, up one side, down the other, or try to. If Jesus hadn't died on the cross, futile. It's a gift. Romans 3, one more. For by works of the law, or your version may say works of law, just the, the category of religious performance, no human being will be justified in his sight. How equivocal is that statement? No human being will be justified this manner. That will not happen. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, it just shows you the zillions of ways you mess up and how high the bar is. Sin's real. It's a real falling short of God. But now the righteousness of God, here's the good news, has been manifested apart from the law. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So our reconciliation to God individually cannot happen by our own power or performance. But let me also say this. It will not happen 